Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. This is a fun one. It's it's a weird one. I think uh, we could call this an historical case of somebody having their heart in the right place. <laughs> They're doing their best. <laughs> Old Henry, the, what is it, the fifth? Is the sixth? Sixth. I'm so bad at Roman numerals, Ben. <laughs> I'm Noel, by the way. Bad at Roman numerals, Brown. But yeah, we're going to have ourselves a good old-fashioned ridiculous history love-in today in the form of a, like you said, Ben, very misguided yet well-intentioned attempt at just getting everyone to get along, mm-hmm. you know, uh, during a little thing called the War of the Roses, which was like a century-long pissing contest, essentially, between royals who were vying for the throne. Isn't that about sum it up? Yeah, yeah. If you were to ask me, hey, Ben, what what is the Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones universe loosely based on? Then I would say the Wars of the Roses, because mm-hmm. George R.R. R. Martin said that as well. As we dive into what is known as Love Day, let's give a shout out to our own uh, aristocrats of ridiculous history, our super producers, Casey Pegram. <laughs> And Max Williams. Noel, you're right. This is a story of political intrigue. This is a story of weird diplomacy. This is a story of King Henry VI attempts to keep the peace. Love Day was this symbolic reconciliation. And this particular Love Day happened between warring factions of English nobility. But before we we dive into this, we should mention that Henry did not make Love Day up. This was a thing that already existed in medieval England, and it was meant to resolve legal differences under arbitration instead of common law, which we'll mm-hmm. we'll dive into in just a bit. But we're talking about a particular Love Day today, aren't we, Noel? The Love Day of 1458. 
Indeed, and what a lovely, love day it was. But before we get into that, I think we should backtrack a little bit into the history of Henry VI himself, who was the youngest king of England uh, and not particularly good at it. He was fine at being young. He just wasn't particularly good at being the king. Uh, He was born in 1421. He inherited the throne as a wee baby, a literal infant. And, you know, and then he grew into it, at least in, in terms of growing into, you know, a sentient being. But he never quite grew into the role and was considered quite incompetent and was blamed historically for the War of the Roses kind of from the get-go, right? Yeah. See, that's the thing about a monarchy versus a meritocracy. Because you become the ruler based on your bloodline rather than your qualifications, you can end up in really surreal situations. Henry VI did become King of England on September 1st, 1422, but he was only nine months old at the time. He automatically became king because his father, Henry V, passed away. He did have other people governing the day-to-day stuff in England uh, until about 1437. By that point, he was considered old enough to rule. He was, as you said, Noel, the youngest person to ever inherit the English throne at that point. And then he got promoted. How office space is this? Just two two years after he got the English throne, his grandfather, King Charles VI, died on October 21st. And boom, Henry becomes King of France. That's right. He became, he was a double king. This never occurred to me, but uh, it sure seems potentially problematic. So he's proclaimed king of France because of something, some, some terms established in the 1420 Treaty of Troyes, uh, where the military success of his father uh, essentially turned France into territories of England. But it was a little more complex than that because, you know, you can declare things territories, but you also have to govern them successfully and keep hold of them. Uh, And at the end of the Hundred Years' War, England had essentially lost all of these French territories and was left with only one called Calais, which I always think of as like a fancy, like like English uh, vacation destination. There's also that, what is it, from the Jabberwocky, where it's like Calou, Calais, oh, fraptious day or something like that. Isn't that right, Ben? Yeah, yeah. It's spelled a little differently, but pronounced roughly the same. So here we are. Henry VI, through no fault and no effort of his own, has become the king of two countries. Heavy weighs the head that wears the crown, it's often said. And in August of 1453, Henry VI contracted a mysterious illness, due perhaps in part to the stresses of being a monarch. He fell into what is described as an inertia that lasted more than a year, lasted 18 months, according to HistoryExtra.com. This remains the subject of some no small amount of speculation on the part of historians. Some historians will tell you that he was suffering from catatonic schizophrenia. The symptoms of this condition include things like stupor, catalepsy, loss of consciousness, basically, and mutism. But other historians have just said, no, he had a mental breakdown. There was genetic precedent for this. We know now his maternal grandfather, Charles VI of France, also suffered from bouts of mental illness for the last three decades of his life. And not to get too highly speculative here, but there was mental health galore in these sort of, let's call them, closed systems of breeding. Mm, 
Mm -hmm. That's a very diplomatic way to put it. The problem with inbreeding is that it can lead to any number of damaging medical conditions or damaging genetic conditions. If you want to see the extreme version of this in European royalty, check out the Habsburgs. You know what? Just Google Habsburg Chin. That's all you need to see. <laughs> exactly right. So, yeah, you know, there are some accounts that kind of shed some light onto what this might have felt like at the time. One thing that, you know, wh whatever you might want to call this, whether it be a, a mental breakdown or these recurring kind of fits of mental health issues, what we do know is that Henry was not particularly interested in engaging with the real world as it existed around him. And that also means not particularly interested in engaging in the day-to-day -day duties that are, you know, governing. I mean, there's a lot to that. You kind of have to be with it or at the very least delegate it to somebody, right? He doesn't seem like he was doing either of those things particularly well. And there's an account from this uh, London merchant of when Henry essentially was introduced to his newborn son and uh, kind of uh, speaks to perhaps the way he viewed the world and others outside of his own mental bubble. And this is what he said. He looked on the prince and cast down his eyes again. Then he goes on to say they could obtain no word or sign from Henry, essentially saying he just kind of moved on. You know, I mean, it's his own flesh and blood. It's his son. He's meeting for the very first time. And he just sort of regarded the child as an object and then kind of was like, take it away. Mm -hmm. Is that about the, the shape of it? Yeah, he wasn't really talking to people. And this lasted, as we said, uh, for a period of 18 months. It waxed, waned. Visitors to the king came to court to tell him that the Archbishop John Kemp had died a few months later. And they couldn't get him to talk or it didn't even look like he was listening. He was just sort of sitting there. And when he finally got out of this funk or he recovered, you know, maybe he was just incredibly depressed. But at some point he came out of this state and get this, folks, he was, quote, astonished to find that his wife had given birth to a son because Edward, right, Noel, you had just said how Henry was introduced to his own son and was kind of like, uh, Meh. <laughs> yeah. Later, later he goes, Oh, wow. I have a kid. Uh, Edward. Was, Why didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> right. Edward was born in uh, October of 1453. So that would have been just a few months after Henry the sixth became unwell, but there's a sidebar here and special shout out to our research associate, Gabe Blusier. A lot of historians and scholars describe Henry the sixth as pious, simple, and Puritan, the label does fit, and we'll, we'll tell you why, but there's this theory, we can call it, that perhaps he was shocked that he had a son because he was, well, clueless in the bedroom, clueless when it came to matters of uh, passion. He spent a lot of his free time meditating on the sufferings of Christ. He stayed in monasteries. He practiced something called Devocio Moderna, a movement for religious reform that was all about humility and obedience. And an historian named Lauren Johnson revealed that his, his bedroom stuff may have been a lower priority for him to the point where he needed help, right? Yeah, apparently he employed the services of a sex coach. 
literally in the, the one time he was like required to, you know, consummate a, a relationship um, in his marriage bed. And Johnson, who, who's a scholar specifically investigating King Henry VI's private life, she says that she found some evidence in the National Archives and in the royal household you know, records that indicated that Henry and his wife, Margaret of Anjou, were actually attended on by these coaches, essentially, uh, during the marriage act. <laughs> I'm doing my best to be very uh, diplomatic today with these terms. But this is what Johnson told the observer, right? Was it because the famously chased Henry didn't know what he was doing? I think it's entirely possible that it had reached a certain point where it perhaps became necessary to make clear to him what he should be doing. That couldn't be done in a public way at all. The king's chamber is the most private place where you could be having this conversation or indeed checking what was going on. Mm -hmm. These are the days before sex ed, you know, and it is definitely a tricky situation to have to tell a monarch what to do with such in such an intimate moment. He wasn't just checked out of the bedroom, though, you know, partially due to this illness. But overall, he was checked out as a ruler for quite a while. And during his reign, tensions skyrocketed. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. You know, when he was out for 18 months, the government was leaderless and, and largely rudderless. And that's when the Duke of York, who is the cousin to the king and himself has a claim to the throne, was appointed Lord Protector and First Counselor of the Realm. 
That Duke of York was Richard Plantagenet. So when the king found himself in better spirits on the other side of his affliction, in 1454, the protectorship of York and his powerful allies, the Neville family, ended. But the partisanship in the government remained. York was mad because he was increasingly excluded from exercising royal power. Uh, he questioned Henry VI's ability to perform royal duties, mainly because he was often unwell, but also because he was, as HistoryHit.com put it, infamously gentle. He had an infamously gentle nature. So York was, the Duke of York is like, this guy is way too nice to be king. Yeah. Well, I mean, and infamously gentle. Uh, again, we're into we're deep in diplomacy here. It's basically just weak, right? It's just saying that he is weak. He doesn't have the constitution or the stamina or the like, you know, drive to like do the job. You got to be brutal and relentless and, and not, you know, have too many scruples when it comes to ruling. Uh, you also have to kind of have the ambition to to do it and to at the very least, you know, care a little bit and pay attention. Ben, I, I got to ask, um, you know how we, in our government, takes a lot to depose a ruler. You know, we, we've had some, we had a situation in our previous president where there were some questions about his mental stability or psychological ability to do the job, correct? And it was very difficult. It, it was discussed, the idea of invoking a clause, I believe, in the Constitution that would allow someone who is not fit to serve to be, you know, forcibly removed and right. replaced. What allowed the Duke of York here to just come in, it was it literally just like a power grab? Well, essentially, you know, you, you could look at it that way. And also, of course, we're referring to the 25th Amendment here in the U.S., which has actually been used in the past, but maybe that's a story for another day. You're right. There are some power grabs here because Richard essentially said, you know, my cousin Henry would be better off as a monk. I am the person who would be best suited to be the king here. There's a lot of action that seems to be preemptive, right, to assume the actions of other rivals and try to, you know, get to the fight before they do. For instance, in May of 1455, Richard leads an army against King Henry's Lancastrian army in a bloody surprise attack that's now known as the First Battle of St. Albans. Uh, and he did this because he believed that another duke, the Duke of Somerset, was going to ambush him if he didn't act first. And why do they call it the Wars of the Roses? Well, the Yorkists, like Richard, were represented by a white rose. And the House of Lancaster, to which Henry VI belonged, was represented by a red rose. Mm -hmm. So essentially, this grab from the Duke of York was kind of, because... Henry VI was such weak sauce, you know, as a, as a king uh, and was doing such a poor job, he kind of opened up this power grab situation, essentially. Yeah, yeah, I think you could say that. The personal enemies of York and his allies, the Nevilles, were the Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Northumberland, and Lord Clifford. All three of those individuals perished. And although this first battle is kind of a smaller deal in military terms, it was explosively important on a political level 
because King Henry got captured. He was a POW. He got escorted to London, and then York was appointed, capital P, capital E, protector of England by Parliament just a few months later. But he had a problem. He got him a little bit of power. He got he got a temporary boost. You know what I mean? Like when you get the star in Super Mario. Yes. He, he didn't get a permanent increase in power. He didn't get, you know, a mushroom or a one-up. That's right. He did get this kind of temporary boost, you know, a la the Mario star, but he wasn't really able to make it last. Um, He did get a second protectorate ship that was also quite short-lived, and Henry VI ended it himself in 1456, because at that point, he had a male heir in the form of Prince Edward, which I believe was that baby that he so... uh, kind of casually disregarded, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But then when it came time for him to be a political pawn, he was like, oh, cool, I'm going to play this one. And that was his, again, the daughter of his wife, Margaret of Anjou. And she actually emerged as a pretty significant power player in uh, the Lancastrian revival. Yeah, yeah, she's making moves. But war always has consequences. And just two years later, 1458, Henry and his government realized that they have an unfinished problem from that conflict at St. Albans. Those three Yorkist lords who had died, along with other people, of course, they had children. And those younger magnates wanted revenge. You know, there's a princess bride moment. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Right. That's the, that's how these guys feel. And they can rally forces of their own. So noblemen on both sides of the conflict start recruiting these retinues of armed followers. This is also occurring in the context of the ever present threat of the French. Right. Who also probably want their stuff back. So Henry is thinking we need to bring these Yorkists back into the fold. We need to make some sort of peace. As we said, he had been described as infamously gentle. Noel, you said uh, you felt that was another way of saying weak. I think that would be also a way of saying uh, timid, you know? Mm-hmm. He's not like a bloodthirsty Conan the Barbarian kind of guy. He he likes to hang out and, you know, pray. So he, instead of punishing people or starting another conflict, he tried to make peace. Once he ordered a deceased trader's impaled body parts to be taken down, and he said the following, he said, I will not have any Christian men so cruelly handled for my sake. And that's kind of classy. You know what I mean? I agree. Like, I don't want people to associate me with mutilated body parts. And then on Good Friday in 1452, he issued almost 150 pardons, 144, following an attempted rebellion by the Duke of York. Yeah, got to applaud him for his kind of focus on the Zen of it all and like trying to convince people to just get along. But you also have to remember this is in the midst of a bloody conflict and and an absolute power grab. And it's almost like he's not quite getting it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You almost kind of feel sorry for him in, in the one hand because he really does seem like completely oblivious and disconnected from the reality that is the situation that he finds himself in the center of and maybe doesn't even realize how perhaps in danger his own life might be? Yeah, I I hate to say it, 
because uh, I'm probably never going to meet him. But what we're learning about this guy makes me think that he was very sheltered, you know, Mm -hmm. in a way only a king could be. And it seemed like for a lot of his life, there were other people controlling him and telling him what to do, whether on the throne or in the bedroom. So in that kind of case, you could see how he may not be accustomed to making his own decisions, especially if they were tough decisions that can result in injury or death for other people. And so we come to Henry VI's big, bright idea. He realizes he has to do something. And so he says, let's have a love day. You know, as we mentioned at the top, a love day was a thing that already existed. We know the name sounds kind of uncreative now, but in the context of a love day, this arbitration period, love doesn't mean romantic love. It means an agreement or a settlement. And day, in the legal sense of the time, just meant a case opening instead of a you know a strict twenty four hour period. So this kind of case could you know it could go on. It wasn't like a single physical day. So our Henry VI was definitely a lover, not a fighter. Uh, And he felt that it would be entirely possible to convert everyone else, all of these fighters in the world, to be lovers like him. If only he could get them to just, you know, demonstrate, to to just, like, put forth a gesture of goodwill towards each other, right? The Lancastrians and the Yorkists. And gosh, Ben, when when I look at Lancastrian, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's basically Lancaster Mm -hmm. from frickin' Game of Thrones. I mean, it has to be derived uh, from that. Ha, I see. That's a good point. Oh, excuse me. Lannister. Lannister. Lan- L- Lannister. Yeah. Lancastrians. I think there, there has to be a connection there. But he wanted to demonstrate, you know, publicly some sort of perceived goodwill between the Lancastrians and the Yorkists. So on March 24th of 1458, he attempted to do just that. He organized a parade or something, a procession, a promenade, what have you, where leading members of the Lancastrians and the Yorks would go through the streets while holding hands. Yeah, literally a uh, come on people now, smile on your brother kind of moment. And it does seem a little bit naive, but let's let's return to our historian here, Lauren Johnson, writing in BBC History magazine. Johnson speculates a little bit more about why Henry VI was so conflict-averse. And she points out, quote, his uncles were ambitious men who blighted Henry's youth with their sometimes violent disputes. Time and again, Henry was called upon, despite his youth and inexperience, to resolve their quarrels, expected to serve as a final arbiter of complex adult dynamics that had taken form before he was born. As he was a sensitive, serious child, it's little wonder that he shrank from conflict in later life. So he had always been asked to make these judgment calls. And as far as we could tell, he hated it. He was like, very reasonably, hey, stop killing each other. But that is an argument that has failed time and time again, not just in uh, the history of uh, the British monarchy, but in human history, I would argue. And also, it's a little bit of a folksy solution in the context of this time, because Love Day is like Love Day was something for like local matters, you know, mm-hmm. like someone killed a cow or someone, you know, is <laughs> letting their dog poop in your yard, right? 
And I would imagine that, you know, with, let's just say, the more colloquial version of this situation, right? Let's say, like, uh, two farmers have a dispute over the loss of P of property in, in the form of a cow. Maybe, you know, one farmer kills the other one's cow. We know that wars have been started over less, right? Or specifically, there was one involving a pig, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. uh, that we recently talked about. But, you know, before this love-in would take place in the streets, kind of sealing the deal, I imagine some some money would have had to change hands. And then this was kind of just like the icing on the cake to publicly let people know, okay, these two farmers are now friends again and we can go along our merry way. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes this had really happy endings, things that could be seen as quite endearing. So as I said, love days were meant to settle things in a peaceful fashion. It's kind of the equivalent of saying, hey, we don't have to go to court over this. And usually... Or traditionally, a love day on a local level, not involving the, you know, the upper echelons of society, would end in a party. Like, imagine being able to resolve your disputes and then having a pizza party at the end. That's kind of what this was like. Josephine Waters Bennett, a medieval scholar, noted that one feast, according to the terms of the agreement, required more than uh, 500 gallons of Gasson wine, that's a Malbec, as well as two fat oxen and 12 fat sheep to be consumed in what both parties agreed would be, quote, a regular English jollification. And they were going <laughs> to they were going to party. They were going to party down because they've figured out their pasture dispute. I am going to start referring to parties as jollifications, Ben. I think it's a good one. I think you should go with that. That could be big for us. I think so, too. But as, you know, kind of was indicated from the start here, this one didn't really turn out that way. There was a lot more uh, at stake and a lot more at play than anything this kind of touchy-feely could have probably sorted out, right? Yeah, this is seriously taking a local dispute resolution tradition and applied it to a full-blown civil war. It's like, imagine if, (laughs) I'm trying to think of a way to say this. So imagine if a civil war broke out in the U.S. and Joe Biden said, okay, guys, everybody come over. We're going to get a couple handles of whiskey. Uh, We're going to get, you know, uh, what what are party things people do? We're going to get some fun hats. hats. <laughs> 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 and we're going we're gonna to get loaded and figure this out together. Ben, I love the fact that both of us immediately went to fun hats as party things. But have you ever actually attended a party that involved fun hats? It's just sort of like this idealized version of what a party should be. Or maybe it's a nostalgic version of it from childhood where it's all about like, you know, fun cone shaped hats. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's not really something that you really see much. (laughs) But it is the first thing that our minds both jump to. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Maybe we should we should bring that back. I know there are things like hat parties that exist. And I know, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, over in the UK, during uh, Christmas celebrations, people do wear those uh, paper crowns. You've seen those before, right? Absolutely. That's a thing that you will distribute uh, at a dinner party, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes they come with these little popper things that have not not like, you know... (laughs) The, the drug, but, um, you know, little things that have, you know, little tr- surprises inside, like Ooh. party poppers, you know, and you you pull the string and it, and it shoots out confetti and maybe there's little treats or, you know, toys or something like that. Ooh. But the paper hats, very much a thing in that world. And now that I'm thinking through this, 
I can imagine some of those nobles who had had their their fathers killed looking askance at this. Like, no, I'm not doing a hand-holding parade. Dude, my dad's dead. You know, that's that's a lot to ask people. And in general, this was seen as a symbolic gesture, as you said earlier. And it's not a very good substitute for revenge after the deaths of friends and family members. But they went ahead and tried to get this mediation leading up to this love day. So two months before this procession, Henry mediated between these warring factions. And it's it's a really weird arrangement. They summoned the English peerage to a great council in London in January 1458. And they wanted you know, the last thing they wanted to see was an armed conflict between the people they had brought together. It would be a very bad look to have just called them all to London and then for there to be blood in the streets. So city officials maintained around-the-clock armed watch, and these two different sides, the Yorkist and the Lancastrian lords, were kept separate. The Yorkist got to stay within the city walls. The Lancastrians had to stay outside. And even with all these precautions, Northumberland, Clifford, and Egremont tried to ambush York and Salisbury as they rode from London to Westminster. So they had to have these folks under armed guard. Otherwise, they would kill each other. Yeah, and the king tried to, you know, preside over these mediations that were super cantankerous, of course. And um, there were intermediaries that kind of, you know, went back and forth between the two sides. Henry's lawyers or barristers or whatever you would call them, I guess they were more like mediators, counselors. They met the Yorkists inside the city at this place called the Blackfriars, uh, and that was in the morning. And then in the afternoons, the same mediators would meet with the Lancastrian lords at the Whitefriars on Fleet Street. I imagine these are two different monasteries, Ben, the Blackfriars and the Whitefriars. It seems very interesting that we have literally two diametrically opposing colors of friars where these different warring sides would meet. Yeah, Blackfriars is an area by the southern fringes of the city of London. And the city of London is not the same thing as London. The city of London is in London, but it's kind of its own separate thing. We should Mm. make an episode on the city of London, actually. I've been there. It's a trip, man. I agree. That sounds so. So these are this has nothing to do with religious orders, or these are literally just two different neighborhoods. Yeah, back in the day, Dominican friars established a priory on the site, and so the name Blackfriars dates back to them when they came to the capital in 1221. Got it. Okay, that makes a little more sense. I thought it was pretty interesting that there were. It was almost like the White Lodge and the Black Lodge, you know, from mm-hmm. <laughs> from. Twin Peaks, that's Mm -hmm. kind of what it made me think of. Okay, so they had these deliberations in the morning and then in the afternoon, and they eventually were able to settle where the Yorks were to pay Somerset 5,000 marks and for Warwick to pay Clifford 1,000 marks and for Salisbury to not levy these, like, fines or duties for hostility against the Nevilles. And then there was a religious aspect, too, because we have to remember Henry VI is arbitrating here. The Yorkists had to endow the abbey at St. Albans with 45 pounds per year for masses to be sung in perpetuity for the souls of the battle's dead. The only thing like that on the Lancastrian side was a payment of a 4,000 mark bond 
to maintain peace with the Neville family, but not forever, just for 10 years. Here you go. We'll give you 4,000 marks, and then we won't fight for a decade. And also, we'll determine blame. So the blame for St. Albans have been placed squarely on the Yorkist, because they're the ones who launched the surprise attack. You know, even if they thought they were doing it just to beat out another surprise attack, they ultimately, quote unquote, fired the first shot. You know what I mean? Although mm-hmm. they obviously didn't use guns. Yeah, conceptually <laughs> speaking. No, I totally get you. So now everything's good, right? We're all solid. Everyone's paid their due. And now it's time for that sweet, sweet love in, right? Sure. Time to let the love day commence. Let our love flags fly. And, you know, this was, I think uh, Henry VI would have seen this as a success, this mediation. And I think he probably felt like this was probably his uh, highest point of diplomacy, where he had actually achieved some sort of resolution. Um, So now in the spirit of that more kind of like local folksy tradition, in March uh, of 1458, hundreds of English lords and uh, ladies assembled at Westminster Abbey and walked holding hands through the streets of London, along the Thames, the western bank of the Thames, all the way to St. Paul's Cathedral. And this was uh, what would be a traditional kind of love day procession in order to, you know, put a sweet red ribbon bow on this whole deal and finally put the War of the Roses to an end. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Yeah, that's the idea. It's ambitious. It's very sweet. It's the kind of plan that, you know, no offense, Henry, maybe maybe is something you should just draw on a piece of paper and then and put up at your house so you can be proud of yourself. I don't want to spoil it, but not everybody is as kiss and make up and turn the other cheek oriented as our guy, Henry. But, you know, they actually did go on this parade. As you mentioned, it was set for Ladies' Day, a day that memorializes the Virgin Mary's hearing of the news that she would bear a child. So that's a big day. 
This day was also considered the start of the new year at the time. It wasn't until 1752 that England adopted January 1st as New Year's Day. This was also meant to be kind of a commercial for peace, a PR move for the non-nobles of London, you know, because they're the ones who are disproportionately affected by the hazards of war, you know. So this is meant to show you, you know, the average shopkeeper, the average resident of London, that, hey, war's over. This is a time of peace. In fact, John Sadler, the author of The Red Rose and the White, who, like, he literally wrote a history book about the English Civil Wars, he says, quote, it was a bit Hollywood. There was a lot of pomp about it. Banners flying, drums beating. It was a show. And no, we know it's a show because we have an excerpt of a ballad that was composed to celebrate this. Do you, do you want to uh, bless us with a reading there, man? Boy, would I ever, Ben. Before I do the reading, though, I want to say, you mentioned the hazards of war. There is also a uh, quite good Decemberist album called The Hazards of Love. And I think that applies here because it turns out that like forcing people, even if they've quote unquote made nice or like awarded each other restitutions, forcing them to hold hands and like, you know, kiss and make up, it can breed further resentments and uh, escalations. But let's do this reading before we get to that. <clears throat> At Paul's in London, with great renown, on our Lady Day in Lent, this peace was wrought. The king, the queen, with lords many one, went in procession, in sight of all the commonality, in token that love was in heart and thought. Ben, what is this rhyming scheme? I don't. I, I feel like I was totally missing the boat on this. I've, I see there is a rhyming scheme. We've got renown, and uh, what? No, renown doesn't rhyme with anything. Renown, maybe, because then it's many one, mm -hmm. and then you've got wrought rhyming with thought and procession. No, that's really it. I don't think there is a rhyming scheme, Ben. Well, there's wrought and thought. That's right. the only one, though. Well, we have to think of pronunciation. Renown mm -hmm. one. Procession, you know, there's some wiggle yeah. room. You could play with it. You Renown, could it. procession, mm -hmm. commonality. But what about commonality? That, yeah, that's just a weird one. That's the part um, where the beat drops. It's totally where the beat drops. <laughs> and it's just acapella real quick, and then it picks back up. Uh, <laughs> you're right. You're right. There is a little bit of a lost in translation vibe there. Sadler says the women in particular would have looked like the 15th century equivalent of footballers' wives. Everybody was dolled up. Everybody's dressed to the nines, he's saying. But beneath all this pomp and all this fancy dress and all these fun slant rhyming songs, there was still a lot of tension. And within two years of this famous Love Day procession, the majority of the men who walked together holding hands in London would be dead. And these wars would go on for nearly 30 more Years, because as you said, as our pal Gabe said, there are a lot of ways to end a war, and making people hold hands in public is apparently not the best solution. They put up with it partially because the king told them to, sure, but they knew it wasn't really gonna work. Queen Margaret had already started kind of being the power behind the throne while the king was in and out for 18 months. So she was at the front of the procession. She was holding hands with Richard of York, and he hated her. They hated each other. Richard Nelville, the Earl of Warwick, 
uh, held hands with the Duke of Somerset, who is Henry Beaufort. And Beaufort's father had been killed at St. Albans. Uh, the- St. Albans was the original kind of conflict that was uh, started by the Duke of York then, the, who was made Lord Protectorate, if I'm not mistaken. Correct, right? correct. And so they had to hold each other's hands, the people that they hated probably the most in the world, and they had to walk with them for two miles, pretending that it wouldn't make their day if the other person was dead, preferably in a slow, painful fashion. Ben, I'm sorry, this is going to sound like a really dumb question, but the show's called Ridiculous History, so I'm okay with it. The two factions, the Yorks and the Lancasters, they're not warring over the crown exactly, right? They're not, I mean, because the king is, is in place, and he's the one who's forcing them to do all this stuff. So what exactly are they at odds over? They do want control of the throne of England. But the king, is he just too dim to be aware that they're vying for, like, his job? Does he not care or does he just not see the threat? I'm confused as to why he is so flippant and just kind of like clueless about this. Is that is it really that simple that he just doesn't quite it doesn't click for him? He yeah, he did have mental issues, we believe. And it was his weak rule, W-E-A-K, I mean here, that brought the House of York's claim, Richard of York's claim, to the throne back That's into what, yep. the public eye, gathered more support for it because they people were saying, well, we could do better than Henry VI. So, so a more iron-fisted monarch would have had these warring factions drawn and quartered in the streets to make a statement as opposed to having them, you know, hold hands and skip merrily through the streets mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, just, just making sure I wasn't missing something entirely, because this all just seems completely bonkers to me. So here's the thing. After going through the motions of this gesture and holding the parade and everything, Henry VI retreats politically. Queen Margaret is at the catbird seat again. She's driving. The Love Day Peace Accord, spoiler alert, doesn't work out. This was like a soap opera, according to our historian Sadler. We've got a cast of characters. We've got all their entourages. They turn these small misunderstandings and all this historical baggage into an ongoing disastrous drama. Less than two months after the Love Day, May 1458, the Earl of Warwick throws the agreement out. And he. this is probably my favorite phrase in this story. There are a lot of great phrases. He engages in some, get this, casual piracy along the coast of Calais, uh, where he had been exiled by the queen. Noel, I love the phrase casual piracy. Casual piracy. No, it's it, I, you, you see exactly what it means. <laughs> it's like going um, to it, the target with no list, just vibes. It's just vibes. So, I mean, I, w- I would assume casual piracy means there wasn't so much a plan or like some sort of master plan or that it was particularly organized. It was just kind of like, well, we're here. We might as well do a little smashing and grabbing, perhaps a little raping and pillaging. <laughs> exactly. That's that's what that's what, and I know it's horrible because, you know, it is piracy and people were injured and probably killed. But I just love the idea of someone seeing another boat and going, oh, while we're here. You know what I mean? Let's do something we'll remember. 
Totally. So, Ben, the War of the Roses, I mean, you know, Henry dies, of course, in uh, May 21st of 1471. The War of the Roses continues on for quite a long time. I mean, this really was sort of the beginning of it. He tries to quell it with this gesture of, like, goodwill, but it obviously doesn't work, blows up in his face, and then he dies after retreating politically. We know this conflict went on for a long time, right? So how, how when did it actually, actually end? The actual, actual end of the Wars of the Roses is generally considered to be June 16th, 1487, meaning the whole thing from stem to stern lasted for 32 years, three weeks, and four days. We got to tell you how, how this all broke down. Margaret hears about this casual piracy, and it's either too casual or too formal for her. Maybe it's just because it's piracy. She summons the Earl to London, the Earl of Warwick, to answer for his actions. A scuffle breaks out, and so she takes this opportunity and accuses the Earl of Warwick, the Duke of York, and some other nobility on their side of treason in October of 1459. And she says the Duke has most diabolical unkindness and wretched envy. She says the Love Day procession is curdled into a parliament of devils. And the roses were at it again, and this would continue for another generation. And as you said, Noel, Henry expires on May 21st, 1471, which means he died before the conflicts concluded. And weirdly enough, he became more popular after his death than he was when he was alive because he was a nice dude. He was like <laughs> a nice guy, but he just, he was a terrible king. I think that's why a lot of this is so hard to wrap my head around is because we're just not used to genuinely nice monarchs. And I think that's because it typically means you aren't suited for the job if you're too nice. And it seems like that was a criticism that was uh, thrown at him plenty. But like happens a lot of times, you know, hindsight being 2020 and all that, he is remembered much more fondly than he was treated when he was alive. Uh, when he was alive, he was kind of treated as an inconvenience and, you know, weakling and this, that, and the other. But when he passed, like I was saying, in, in May uh, 21, of 1471, he started almost being treated like a saint. People were coming and making pilgrimages to Chertsey Abbey, where he was buried. And that's before the new king, Richard III, had Henry's remains moved to St. George's Chapel in Windsor. And there was this notion that Henry was this like kind of saintly man, not just a nice man, but a uh, holy man. And there is a 1500 book that uh, showed up that was almost like the gospel of Henry, you know, where it uh, talked about his ability to perform miracles, including like resurrecting plague victims. It's almost this whole mythology that grew up around this dude after he died. And again, you know, this we know that he did do things like have, you know, body parts removed from the city walls, that he pardoned all these people. So it seems like there's a grain of truth in this that blossomed into out and out him walking on water and performing miracles. So where did all this come from? Well, uh, according to an historian named Desmond Seward, a lot of it came from the unfortunate circumstances of Henry's death. He was unjustly murdered, and Seward believes this created widespread pity for a king who, after his deposition, was treated like a thief and put to death without having committed any crime. He just became too much of a liability politically. Also, you know, 
ridiculous historian to the crowd of a certain age with a certain um, depth of experience may recall that similar observations were made, whether or not you agree with them, similar observations were made about the U.S. president, Jimmy Carter. There were a lot of people who were saying, this guy is too nice to be president. Yeah, no, it's true. And I get it. History almost took pity on him and kind of (laughs) created, maybe not history, but like those who are responsible for writing certain portions of this history. And I guess uh, decided to give him some superpowers in the afterlife. Right, right. Which is nice, but is it as nice as not being murdered? I would say probably not. Maybe it depends on your perspective. But this ends the story of Henry VI. I would say this noble, if misguided, effort to make people be a little bit nicer to each other. It didn't work, you know, but it was very nice of him to try. Especially it really was. the alternatives. And it's like you don't even get a whiff of the types of megalomaniacal acts that most young monarchs tend to absolutely thrive on. You know, I'm thinking when talking about Game of Thrones, I'm wondering if they took this character, maybe this character is Tommen, you know? Maybe. Who, who, who is the sweet boy mm-hmm. um, who, you know, ultimately was the younger brother of Joffrey, who is an absolute monster. So obviously there's some bits and pieces and picking and choosing uh, to make it. But I'm really totally seeing uh, the parallels here. But it turns out that we in history had a pretty benevolent, if misguided and uh, not particularly <laughs> suited for the job monarch but this was a cool one man i want we should do more war of the roses related stuff this is there's a lot to it i imagine a lot of uh different factions and and infighting and Mm. um, this is a great uh great primer great place to start no real dragons though but i agree with you noel there is one thing i'd like to leave us all with which is this if you would like to take up some of the practices of the cult of henry the sixth there's a very simple thing you can do if you want Henry VI, to come back from the dead and perform a miracle for you, all you have to do is take a silver coin and bend it as an offering to the saint. Now all we need to do is find some silver coins. What do you think? Wait, so he was officially canonized? No, no, not at all. More of a folk saint. Got it. I love a good folk saint. And um, I think that's a great idea. And this is completely unrelated, but I just, in the interest of uh, turning folks on to some interesting um, uh, cinema, uh, I recently saw an A24 kind of psychological horror film called Saint Maud, um, which is also sort of about a folk saint. And it is not for the squeamish, but I highly recommend it. It does a really good job at like looking at mental health and kind of, you know, some of the perceptions of uh, people with with mental illness. And I I highly recommend St. Maud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that one. It is well worth the watch. Do check it out. And while you're on the internet, why not come say hi to us? You can find Ridiculous History on our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians. And you can also send us an email where we are, ridiculous at iheartmedia.com. Huge thanks to super producer Casey Pegram, super producer Max Williams, Alex Williams, who composed this theme. And, of course, big thanks with a big asterisk to uh, our good friend slash nemesis, Jonathan Strickland, 
aka the quizster someone bend a silver coin for us to win the next time he drops by which hopefully won't be today i think we got to cut it short Mm -hmm, we do but while you're on the internet do yourself a favor and check out our brand new sister podcast ridiculous romance with eli and diana getting some amazing reviews so far on the internet which is not known for being particularly nice so that warmed my heart and i'm sure it did yours as well ben it did indeed uh and spoiler alert they're going to be coming on our show very soon so stay tuned we'll see you next time folks for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows with every cbd product claiming to do something different it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com.